0: So uh, last week we talked about the horrifying concept of the final day of judgment from the last verses of Re- Revelation six. In contrast, this morning we're talking about a topic that is enormously uplifting and encouraging because we come to chapter seven and. Both parts of chapter 7 have, uh, have this characteristic. Uh, we'll cover one part this morning, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll talk about the second part next week. So let's read the first eight verses of Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God. I'm sorry, with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. were sealed. So, in chapter 4 of Revelation, you remember we read about this vision that John had about the one on the throne. And then in chapter 5, a sort of a sequel to that vision, the one on the throne had a scroll with seven seals. And the Lamb was the only one Worthy to open the seals. And then in chapter 6, we began to read about the opening of these seven seals. The first four seals represented the unleashing of four evil horsemen who bring devastation upon the earth. And then the opening of the fifth seal... We saw the saints in heaven crying out to God, How long before you bring vengeance upon, uh, uh, upon the, those who shed our blood? And then Revelation 6 ends with the opening of the sixth seal, which was the day of God's wrath, which we talked about last week. So you come to chapter 7 expecting to read about the seventh seal. But the seventh seal isn't there. Instead you have two more visions. And then the seventh seal which comes in chapter 8 verse 1. Now the most common way of addressing this has been to say that chapter 7 is an interlude, that the process of the opening of the seven seals is interrupted or paused to these two little side-by-side visions of chapter 7. And then it resumes in chapter 8. Well, I don't like the interlude theory. It makes more sense to me to consider these two parts of chapter 7 as parts of the sixth seal. In other words, I think it makes more sense to think of the sixth seal as having three parts rather than there being this interlude that just uh, is inserted between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So I think the three parts are that the judgment day that we... So- that part we did last week, then the vision of the ceiling of the 144,000, which we're doing this week, and then the vision of the great multitude in the second half of chapter 7, which we'll cover next week. Fortunately, the issue of how to interpret the structure here is much more difficult than finding the meaning of each section, and it's not as important. So I'm going to move on from that. It doesn't really make a lot of difference in terms of how we view the meaning of the whole thing, which way you take it. So there are three parts of our passage this morning. And so let's talk about each of these three. The first one is just verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So here we have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on the earth and bring any kind of destruction to earth, sea, or tree. It's like they're like dams holding back, but instead of holding back water, they're holding back wind, preventing it from falling on the earth. So why are these angels holding the winds back? Well, it's because before these winds are released to do their damage, something else has to be done first. What are these four winds which the angels are holding back? Well, it's hard not to connect them with the four horsemen on four horses ready to ride forth to bring destruction upon the earth, which we read about earlier in chapter 6. Especially since in both cases, they're bringing destruction upon the earth. We see that in, in uh, verse 2 and 3. There's also, this is also a very reasonable connection in light of a vision in Zechariah chapter 6. Which, like the first four uh, seals, the four horsemen... It has four horse-powered forces sent to the earth, which are explicitly, in Zechariah 6, connected to the four winds of heaven. So, I would recommend the interpretation to connect these with the four horsemen. So, they're holding back the four horsemen. That's the point here. These four angels... Before the four horsemen are allowed to wreak their havoc on earth, they're, they're held back like, like, you know, a person holds the reins of a horse who wants to go forward. But they're holding it back until something is accomplished. Why are they being held back? What is this thing that uh, th- they're, they're waiting for? Well, that's what we learn in verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. While the four angels are holding back the four winds, a fifth angel rises up and calls to the other four, don't do any harm yet. First, we've got to seal the Lord's servants. This is what must be done before the four horsemen are released to wreak their havoc on earth. So what does it mean that the servants of God need to be sealed on their foreheads? Well... Marks on the forehead are used a lot in the book of Revelation. It has to do with ownership. Remember that the ones who get the seal here are the servants of God. And the word for servant is the same in Greek as the word for slave. And it was a common practice according to Greg Beale, for instance, in the ancient world to mark slaves on the forehead to indicate who owned them and to whom they owed service. But this seal was more than ownership. This seal was also protection. We see this a little later in chapter 9, verse 4, where the sat- satanic powers are commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they couldn't do any harm to those who had the seal. It seems that the Lord's chosen people are given this protective coat or shield which prevents them from being harmed by the destructive powers being released. Let me use two biblical illustrations to help us get a grasp on this. One very familiar and one probably unfamiliar. The unfamiliar one comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. There's a story there which really helps us to understand the point of this seal. However, it's pretty heavy. Ezekiel prophesied at a time when the sin in the city of Jerusalem had gotten so abominable that God was bringing his judgment down upon them, mainly through Babylon. Ezekiel was actually already in Babylon, along with many other exiles. But in a vision, he's transported back to Jerusalem. There, God says to him to assemble all the executioners of the city, along with their instruments of execution. And so the city's six executioners gather But with them comes another man. And the Lord says to this other man, Go through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who mourn and grieve over all the sins being committed in it. And then to the executioners, God says, You, pass through the city after him. Start in the temple and strike down the people. Kill old men, young men, maidens, women and children. Do not spare them or pity them. But don't touch anyone who has the mark. So, this is very, very similar, isn't it? It's also very similar to what happened in the Passover In Exodus 12, God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn of each household. But he told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doors. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the door, he would pass over that house and the firstborn of that house would be spared. So this is the idea of this seal. Before God sends his messengers of mayhem to the earth, he first orders that a protective seal be placed upon each of his servants so that they might not be harmed in the process. The third section, 4 through 8, where I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's just a list of the tribes of Israel. But he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, 12,000, all the way down 12 times. So, who are these 144,000 who are given this seal? Well, we've already been told in verse 3 that they are the servants of God. Let me tell you why I think it's talking about all of the servants of God, all true believers. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to be his, promising to bless him and his children, to be his God and the God of his children, to make them a great people, as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And Abraham's family grew into a clan and then into a nation. But two strange things happened as it all unfolded. First of all, many who were descended from Abraham were not included among God's promised people. The other thing that happened is that some of those who were not blood descendants of Abraham did get included with his promised people like Rahab, like Ruth, like Uriah, like Bathsheba. Well the New Testament explains this. It turns out that the identity of the children God promised to Abraham is more complicated than it seemed at first. It isn't just the physical descendants of Abraham. And read Romans 9 for deeper uh, discussion of this. For instance, in the New Testament we find out that those who reject Jesus aren't true Jews. We saw this in Jesus' letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia in Revelation 2.9 and three nine, where he referred to, quote, those who seek say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan. We also see that gentiles who embrace Christ are true children of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3:7 Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3:29 if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Romans 2:28 to 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. This seems to be why all of God's servants, from both before and after Christ, are here depicted as this great community of the tribes of Israel. The number 144,000 is also meant to be figurative, just like the rest of the numbers in the book of Revelation. Revelation. The 144,000 represents the complete number of God's people. Now, you know that seven is the number of completeness in the book of Revelation. But the number 12 is the number of completeness when it comes to God's people based on the 12 tribes of Israel. All of them were the 12 Probably the 144 here is the number of the 12 tribes representing God's people in the Old Testament multiplied by the 12 apostles times a thousand to depict a massive number. In Revelation 21.9-22.5 John has a vision of the heavenly city of Jerusalem the new Jerusalem. Representing the whole people of God. This new Jerusalem has 12 gates on which are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It also has a great wall. And how tall is the wall? It is 144 cubits in height with 12 foundations on which are written the names of the 12 apostles. So this vision shows God making sure that all his people are protected from the destruction descending upon the earth. But before we go any further, let's talk about the nature of this protective seal. What exactly are the servants of God protected from as a result of being sealed What we'd like to be true is that while the world is beset with all of its problems, those who love Jesus are protected from trouble and pain and sickness and heartbreak and poverty. But that's not the case, is it? You see, just as parents know that unlimited candy and unlimited screen time is not good for their children. So God knows that unlimited success and smoothness and ease is not good for His children. These things would make us glory in ourselves and forget about Him. And I know it sounds funny, but this life isn't what we're here for. We're here for the life to come and so what are we protected from well the nature of the protection is spiritual not physical not financial not relational not even psychological the servants of God sealed in this way must still live in a world of turmoil and even suffer alongside their fellow humans but their souls are protected. Their faith is protected. They are empowered to persevere through all their tribulations. So upheaval and trouble have been cast down upon the earth. But it can't harm you if you are one of Christ's little ones. It can be painful. It though, can't harm you ultimately. It can do damage to your body, could even kill you, but it can't harm your soul. In fact, not one hair on your head can be damaged unless it is the will of God for you, unless it is the best possible thing for your soul. The seal means that for lovers of God, all tribulations are turned into good, as it says in Romans eight twenty-eight. It protects not necessarily from afflictions, but from the evil of afflictions, as Westminster Confession says in chapter 20, paragraph 1. In other words, no affliction is allowed to harm their souls. And they're protected from any affliction which would indeed harm their souls. Although they may suffer and even lose their physical life, the seal protects them from losing their spiritual life with God. It empowers the saints to remain loyal to Christ. Once sealed, these tribulations become the very instruments by which faith can grow. Here's another way of looking at it. The wrath of God is being manifested against the wicked through the tribulations brought about by these four horsemen in Revelation 6. But for believers, Jesus on the cross has already taken the wrath they deserved. So they are now immune from the wrath of God. Usually we think about this as pertaining to Judgment Day. But the fact is it's true every day. Saints are protected by the blood of Jesus from any manifestation of the wrath of God. It's already been poured out on Jesus. So they are immune from any unneeded hardship or suffering. Now this has a lot to say about the way that we think about ourselves. We sing the hymn, glorious things of thee are spoken. And this is one of those glorious things that the Bible says about us. We have been sealed by God against all that can damage us. That is precious. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel secure in the Lord's loving hands? This is an important tool that God has given us by which we might grow in that sense of security in his loving hands. If you belong to Christ, you are protected. The world cannot touch you. The devil cannot overcome you. No one and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never... No, never forsake. If you've been sealed by God, He's got you covered. If you belong to Him, He will sustain you. If God is the the one who gave you faith, He's the one who will maintain that faith. I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion At the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6, he doesn't leave his work half done. Now what about those who lose their faith though? Well, those who lose their faith never truly had faith. That's part of the purpose of tribulation. It exposes false faith and it proves the reality of true faith. True faith, you see, doesn't come from us. It is the gift of the God who says, I want that one to be mine. Think about Judas and Peter. Both of them turned their backs on Jesus in their final days, in Jesus' final days. Judas was chosen as a disciple But you see, Judas was never reborn. He was never transformed within. He was never given spiritual life. He lived with Jesus, but Jesus never lived in him. So eventually, Satan entered his heart and he betrayed Jesus. The Lord didn't maintain his faith because the Lord had never chosen to give him faith in the first place. Peter, on the other hand, had true faith. So he was sealed for Christ. And when he denied Jesus, he didn't fall away like Judas. Jesus intervened. He said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. Now, as this was all playing out, was Jesus waiting to see if Peter and Judas would make it? No, he wasn't. He knew Judas was going to do what he did. And he prayed for Peter, enabling him to repent and return. But Jesus let Peter fail. If he loved Peter, and if Peter was sealed, why would God allow him to fail? Because Peter needed to fail. He needed to learn from failing. He needed to feel his weakness. He needed to be humbled. And this is why God allows trials and tribulations to come into our lives. We're actually better off when life makes us feel weak. At the men's breakfast yesterday, we heard Kurt's beautiful testimony of how God used weakness and inadequacy in his life and in Jennifer's to get their attention and drive them to himself. Remember what Paul says to What Jesus says to Paul, that is, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It is often painful, but it is beautiful. One of the great privileges of my life has been to watch people being sustained through what seems like impossible circumstances. How do they do it? It's not them. Invisibly, there are heavenly hands holding them up. And that's a thing of beauty. But there's another reason God sometimes allows us to be battered with tribulations. If you invented a new kind of automobile finish, which was indestructible, how would you prove to investors or customers that it was so amazingly good. You'd probably pull out every conceivable test. Tropical sun, searing heat, arctic cold, rain, sleet, salt, pressure washing, hailstorms, sandstorms, blizzards, temperature fluctuations, drive-through car washes, floods, Falling leaves and branches. People sitting on the car. Years of wear and tear. And then show off how the finish was still standing strong. Does that sort of sound like life to you? Well, that's now we know why. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. Isn't this exactly what's going on in the story of Job? God is allowing Satan to wreak havoc on Job's life all in order to prove that Job's faith in God is indestructible. Is it easy for Job? Of course not. What a joke. It is so hard. But Job at the end is still shining. And that's sort of the idea, isn't it? That we're still shining at the end. The world can't understand it. It's all because of God. Upholding us, protecting us, sustaining us, bringing us through. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And we give him the glory. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your care and your love for us. We thank you that you have not abandoned us to pain and difficulty and hardships that are too much for us to bear, even though they might feel like they're too much for us to bear, we thank you, O Lord, that in them you sustain us. And dear Lord, even when our hearts are breaking, we thank you that you can that you, we can trust in you, and know that you are doing good things even if we can't understand it, we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be alert to your goodness constantly and rest in your promises and never be, never give in to the temptation to think that we have been forsaken because we know, O oh Lord, that No one can snatch us out of your hand. Now we thank you for the chance to celebrate what Jesus did for us. How he proved his love for us by giving us his own life as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And now, Lord, as we come to the table of the Lord... We pray that you would be with us in a strong way. That you would open our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen.